drive, you can support the programs you love by donating that unwanted vehicle. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station, and you could get a tax deduction. Or you could just give us hundreds of dollars directly. We'd like that a lot. And thank you. Go to WJFFRadio.org and donate right now. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com And from listeners like you. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com Welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. Several years ago, I was on a vacation to remember in Italy with dear friends. One of those friends was Eddie Epstein, my guest today. You might have heard the interview I did with him there about his time spent in Roscoe, New York on the Arthur Campbell Dairy Farm, his friendship with Pete Seeger, and how he ended up playing guitar for Woody Guthrie. At that time, I asked him if he would come back and talk about his near-death experience on the boat that he built and lived on for six months out of the year down in Trinidad. Well, he's back in the Catskills after a long COVID stretch, and we're going to discuss that fateful trip in 2006. Here's Eddie Epstein and the plight of the ruby. Welcome back, Eddie. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, what a pleasure to be back. Let's start by reminding the listener a little about you and how you built the Ruby. Oh, well, me. I, uh, I'm an artist, musician, uh, kind of a jack of, jack of a whole bunch of trades. And, uh, I always call you a renaissance man. Yeah, well, that will serve. I built this boat to go sailing, to go cruising. And uh, boat building came along as part of my um, art career. It was, it was like building a sculpture, a working sculpture, that is actually a piece of <laughs> traveling furniture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a... Uh, Maybe know. the audience will remember that you built this boat in your house the house that you actually also built. And when you built the house, you built a 10-foot ceiling in the basement, so you could... Yeah, well, the basement, that's a thats a misleading word. It wasn't a basement. <laughs> People made jokes about it. How'd you get the boat out of the basement? Well, uh, obviously, that's not what, what it was. It was a slab at ground level. Oh, okay. And then the house was built above that. And the slab was, was the floor of my shop. And when I was building it, I was looking up and saying, hmm, I think I'll build tall ceilings here for some reason. I don't know why, but I think uh, someday I'll be glad that I did. So I built 10-foot ceilings in the in my shop and then built the house over that. Right. And then, of course, years later when I was uh, building boats, I realized that the 10-foot height was minimal for what I was going to do, but it worked. So at the time in your life when you finished Ruby and you decided you were going to be cruising down in the Caribbean, you spent about a quarter of the year in Vermont with your partner Diane, 
and then three quarters of that t- of the time in Trinidad, correct? Right. I spent the whole winter down there. In spring, I would come back for a month to to a month to month and a half or so, and uh, stay in Vermont for that period and and do a little work to earn some money to take back with me. And then again in the fall, I would do the same thing. So I spent most of the summer. And, most, and all of the winter in Trinidad. Well, that first trip, taking the boat from Vermont down to Trinidad, must have been something. Yeah, it was actually, that, was, that trip was stretched out over three years. I left Vermont in 1998 and we arrived in Trinidad in 2001, uh, during which time I spent about eight or nine months in the Dominican Republic, about eight or nine months in the Bahamas, uh, five months in Puerto Rico, um, six months in Grenada, etc. And so, um, yeah, I arrived in Trin- in Trinidad. I think uh, New Year's Day, two thousand and one, something like that. You know, I totally forgot that that you had spent time in all those other places. I liked all those places. Uh, every every place was different. The Bahamas was, it's, it's, the Bahamas is many places. It's seven hundred islands on the Bahamas, so mm. I stayed in a number of different places. I stopped a lot of places. Stopped Turks and Caicos, and and nine months in Dominican Republic. That was that was quite interesting. Anchored there for a lot of time and. Yeah, it was all it was all great. I loved mm. I loved traveling. Maybe the listener can hear it, but there's thunder in the background, and it's sort of ominous because we we are telling an ominous tale, and it's sort of it's almost like I paid Mother Nature <laughs> to come up with a storm during this. The incident that we're going to be speaking of was really not ominous weather at all. It was, right, but but it's it was yeah. yeah. Uh, where did you keep the boat when you went back to Vermont? Uh, I lived at anchor in Trinidad, and when I left for Vermont, I left the boat at anchor. And um, there were uh, the boat boys, young men who work at the marina where I was, and I was on good terms with them all. And so I would, I would ask one to just keep an eye out on the boat, and and I'd pay him a fee for the for the time that I was on, just unofficially, just just give him some money and 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 tell him that he's free to to use the boat, not not to use it for to go sail, but if but if he wants to hang out on it, he could, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just keep an eye on it. So, yeah, make mm-hmm. sure nothing happened. Right. Nobody stole mm-hmm. anything yeah. off of yeah. it. Or- yeah, these guys are trustworthy, and they're not going to invade boat stealing stuff. It doesn't happen very much down mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So over the time that you were down there on the boat, did you become well-versed in the care and upkeep of boats? Because basically you didn't, you didn't really know that much when you started. Yeah, well, I built the boat, so I built it. I knew every every inch of every, every part of the boat. Mm. So... Um, and as far as being well versed in maintaining it, it's it's all basically well. If I figured out how to build the boat, I'm most likely going to be able to maintain it and fix things that go wrong. And of course, things go wrong all the time on boats. And uh, sometimes they're in emergency situations. Sometimes they're in more laid back situations. But you have to deal with them, no matter what. And I dealt with them all and 
one way or another, managed to keep the thing afloat. You know, you remind me of a guest I had on my show a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Shireen Padua, and she's what you call a problem solver. Mm-hmm. You know, she would see, she, she learned this from her parents, from her mother especially, that you, when you see something that you, that's broken, you, you try to figure out, well, how did this happen? Where, does, where do the parts go? And you're kind of like that too. You're a problem solver. Got to be. Yeah. Every, everyone who's, who goes out on a boat has to do that to a certain extent. A lot of people who out, go out on boats ha- happen to have money also so they can hire mechanics to do things that need to be done on the boat. But but basically, you're out there in situations where things can come up at any moment, at any time, and you don't always have a, ca- a mechanic within reach. Right. So you have to commit yourself to some of that. But I, I do imagine that when you came back to Trinidad after however long you were away, the boat would need some attention, correct? You've been away from it for a few months. Yeah, it may be something minor that's simply cosmetic, uh, some varnish or paint, or it may be something major. It's more than just cosmetic, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to remind the listener at this point, you mentioned it in the beginning, but you, you are an artist and you're a musician. And while you were living in Trinidad, you were able to indulge both of these artistic expressions as you lived on your boat. You were in a pan band and you also painted and, and sketched and did a lot of work while you were on your boat. Yes. My main activity for the, the years that I was down there was playing with steel drum band. Played in every carnival, every year, every carnival and every festival that, that the bands played in. This was, this was really almost a full-time job because I would practice an hour or two every day on the boat and every night practice three hours with the band mm. without fail. We played year-round. So uh, it was pretty close to a full-time job. Music was great. People were were great. It was like a family. The band was a family, and I was part of the family. And it was a great experience. It was a beautiful life. Great. Fantastic. The problem with it it was that uh, real life is not that good. So I started... Something had I, I was I was thinking, oh boy, this is. I'm going to have to pay for this somewhere along the way. I hope I can. When the bill comes due, I hope I'm able to afford it. Wow! And uh, when it came due, it was came due in a, in a surprise manner, which was bound to be the case, and it was pretty dear. Mm. Well, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to get back to how you had to pay for the beautiful life. Sarah Gorby from her record Romanceros Jubio Españoles. I'm Aaron Bendich, and every week on Borscht Beat, I play a selection of Jewish recordings. I don't often buy songs that are in Judeo-Spanish or Ladino, but it's wonderful to expose myself and my listeners to some music that comes from a different culture within Judaism than we're used to listening to together. Sunday afternoon at 1. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance Riverfest, July 25th in Narrowsburg, New York. 
kicking off at 10 a.m. with the River Dogs on Parade, featuring the community's best-dressed pooches strolling down Main Street. DelawareValleyArtsAlliance.org The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, dedicated to building community through performance, learning, markets, and good times. TheCooperageProject.org And from listeners like you. Welcome back to Catskill Character. My guest today is Ed Epstein. And we are about to find out what the harrowing adventure was in Ed's life. So here we go. So, Eddie, what happened when you returned this particular time to Trinidad that was different from all the other times? Yeah, it was June June of um, 2006. I had just spent two months in Vermont working, earning enough money to, for the next year. And I arrived to Trinidad, and I had to check in with immigration, as all foreigners do whenever they enter any country. What was the usual immigration check-in like? You go to the office and... Uh, Give them my name, and and they look up in the file, and they had a they had a file of all the boats. I am a boat owner who left his boat there, anchored. So so they have a file on me and the boat, and they took it out of the file. And this guy read the read the thing, and he said, he said, "You've been in my country too long. You have two weeks to get out of the country. Take your boat and leave the country." I said, "Wait a minute. I I just came back. I was." I was away for two months, and every time I come back, I I, I usually get six weeks, a six-week uh, permit to stay. He said, well, you're not getting it now. Mm. I said, why not? Said, well, you've been in here for too long. But I, so I've been there legally, and I left legally, and I'm coming back legally. Uh, and And this guy was not at all interested in dealing with me, so just said, well, if you don't like two weeks, then you have one week to get out. Oh. So I didn't continue that argument with him. When I left the office, I called the immigration department in Port of Spain, the capital city of Trinidad, and made an appointment to uh, speak to someone there. Actually, before that, I called the U.S. Embassy hmm. to see if they could help me, and, and the U.S. Embassy was totally uninterested in helping me. I described my situation, and the people there said, we don't have any influence here. We can't tell them what to do. They have their rules, their laws, which was not really true. But uh, that was that was the way they dealt with me. So uh, so I I went finally to to the appointment that I made to see uh, officers at immigration. I spoke to two officers there who listened to my story. I told them that when I returned, there was one thing I had to do. I had to take the sails off my boat and bring them to a sail loft and have them restitched because they had been in the tro in tropical sunlight for eight years and they were deteriorating and they needed to be restitched professionally and uh, and I need time to do that and I, I had planned to haul the boat out when I when I arrived and work on it and this guy won't let me do it and they asked me, who, who is this guy? Describe him. I didn't know his name. I described him and said, oh, yeah, we know him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a problem. But he's not really a, an immigration officer. He's a cop, a local cop, and the cops rotate in and out of, oh. of uh, certain... He's, he's some kind of an officer, but, uh, but, uh, but he was on duty during that time. So, 
So just was, your luck. Yeah, right. Just my luck. So, uh, so they said we'll give you the ninety day, but but we can't stamp your passport here. You have to you have to take it down there and have him stamp it. And I said he's not going to stamp it. He's got it in for me. He's he's not going to do it. So they said we'll call him. So they called him, oh, no. and they came back and they said okay, uh, they're expecting you. Just go in there tomorrow morning and they'll stamp your passport, and you you'll have ninety days. Well, I didn't quite trust that, but I went in the next morning, and when he saw me, he went into a rant. He said, those guys there don't tell me what to do. I'm in charge of this office here, and, and he, he dissed them he badly, and, and he refused to, to sign the passport. He says, you've got till Friday to get out of here, oh. or I will take severe action against you. So what does that mean? I'm a foreigner. What? I have no rights there. Severe action. He could confiscate my boat. So I just made plans to leave, to leave on Friday. And I did leave on Friday evening, sailed out. It's, a, it's about a 24 to 30 hour sail to the nearest port, which was Grenada, about 100 miles north. So I left in the evening. So none of those repairs on the sails could be done? No. I was sailing with damaged sails. And, and actually, what he did was illegal. It was against international maritime law. Mm. I was not in a position to do it, anything about it. So I sailed towards Grenada, and uh, it was a beautiful moonlit night. It could not been, have been more beautiful. Uh, a tropical night, nice breeze, um, sailing in the moonlight, it's just a wonderful experience, as anybody who's done it knows. It's, it's quiet. The only sounds is the water rushing past the hull. At a certain point, I had to start the motor and motor sail for a while because there was a strong current. The Atlantic flows into the Caribbean between the islands. So even though it's 100 miles between Trinidad and Grenada, it's still a, a bottleneck. And so uh, it, there's a, about a... A knot, one and a half knot current flowing west uh, from the Atlantic into the Caribbean. So, so you motor sail to keep the boat on course for north because otherwise it will just be pushed over further west. Anyway, we got through the night and uh, it was about five o'clock in the morning and the sky was starting to get light and suddenly there was a loud metallic clang from underneath the boat and the boat was shuddered because it hit something. Mm. I looked back, nothing came to the surface. I didn't see anything that would explain that. So whatever I hit was below the surface. The motor was still running, but I noticed that the prop wash was not. So I looked over and the, and the, the propeller uh, was no longer spinning although the motor was still running and the drive shaft was still spinning. So something had been broken. Whatever it had hit had damaged the prop. So I turned off the motor and figured, well, this is a sailboat, so we're going to have to do the rest of the set by sail. Uh, and at this point, I was 20 miles south of Grenada. So a 20-mile, I could do that in five hours, five or six hours, maybe. So I continued sailing uh, towards Grenada, now being moved bit by bit westward 
out of my path, my northward path. And then, having been awake all night at the helm, I decided to go down and get something to eat. And when I went below, I saw that water was sloshing around down below. So whatever had hit had hit the boat, had broken through the garboard plank, and uh, it had always been a dry boat. Now there was plenty of water sloshing around. Not an not enormous amount of water, but it was uh, a few inches deep. And so I immediately started uh, working the pump and getting it out. Whatever had broken was letting, letting water in slowly. So that you was, weren't that concerned at that moment? Oh, yeah, I was quite concerned, but oh. still. Uh, it was not immediate danger as long as I could pump the water out. And we continued sailing for uh, hours. And at a certain point, the pump, the bilge pump gave out, and I had to resort to the, to the hand-operated pump. So, so every half hour or so, I went down and, and pumped out a bunch of gallons of water uh, to keep the water low, low in the bottom of the boat. Don't mm. want it to fill up. And uh, by the time I closed that 20-mile distance to Grenada, I was now 10 miles west of Grenada, so far from landfall. Um, And then in the shadow, in the wind shadow of the island, I tried to beat back against the wind, waves, and current to Grenada and uh, making very, very slow process because at this point, the sails, which had lost their their necessary shape from... uh, deterioration, they, they were starting to come apart. The jib came apart, it shredded at a certain point. Yeah, so, and then I couldn't get the, get the sail down because it was wrapped around uh, the shrouds of the boat. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a pretty serious problem at that point. And that's when I decided I was going to try and get into the, try and get to land, make land in the dinghy. Ah. Oh. Were you starting to panic at that point? No, I wasn't panicking. I was. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. You watch yourself in a situation like that. Uh, see, see what you're going to do. Uh, I wasn't. Oh, well, maybe it's a, cer- a certain level of panic, but but it was, it was a pretty low level. But uh, uh, I was just trying to think of the best things to do, mm. uh, and there and I had no good choices. You're trying to solve the problem. Yeah, trying to solve, and there were no good choices. <laughs> there, is, there were a, few, a number of choices, and the, the choice I made was to was to get in the dinghy and try to make it to land. Uh, in in hindsight, that was not the best choice. Though friend, people have said to me, "Well, it must be because you're here now telling about it." Well, right. I don't buy that completely, but it, but there's there's a certain logic to it, but. Uh, but I don't think I don't really think I should have lost the boat. I was uh, a relative. Uh, I was relatively new to sailing, not that new. I've been sailing for a number of years, but I didn't grow up with it. I did, it's not in my. It's not in my blood. It's not like, as is with people who've grown up sailing. They, um, they they're, they're more likely to come to the correct uh, solutions more naturally than I was able to. So, um, to make a long story interminable, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I had lost, well, I was way out of, out of sight of the boat because it had disappeared in the night. 
as I was rowing towards land, and I realized after about an hour that I was not going to make it to land because I was rowing against wind waves and current, and uh, my hands, my fingers was, were at that by that time blistered from, from the effort, and uh, yeah, there was a certain level of panic at that point, I guess. Uh, well, the fiasco that occurred when you you called to shore with your VHF uh, was that the the uh, Coast Guard there just didn't seem to know what they were doing. They were just kind of going around in circles. But luckily for you, a fisherman came yeah. by. And, and you know, the, what you always told me was that this area where you were was not a well-traveled yeah. area. So in some ways, the fishermen shouldn't have even been there. No, no, the fishermen go out everywhere. But the thing is that there's the road, the, the, the island chain is a highway in the water. Mm. So so boats that are traveling along the island chain are, are, are sailing close to the islands. They, they stay on that road. Um, and I was, at that point, I was 12 miles from land. Mm. So that is far, That's far, far. From, that, uh, from that highway. So, and I did see at one point when I had given up, I thought I was dead, I'm dead now, and nobody knows I'm out here. And uh, I just have a few days to live, and then I'll have to decide how I'm going to give it up. Mm. Uh, that's a strange thing to think about. Uh, and uh, at some point, I saw that there was a fisherman, like an 18-foot fishing skiff, wooden fishing skiff, painted in bright colors, uh, coming my way off quite a distance, well, a mile away or so. And it was heading in my general direction. and. And uh, so I started waving my, my life jacket and yelling. And of course, it was too far away to hear, but it, but it was getting closer. And it wasn't coming directly to me, but but in the area. And it got as, as close as like 100 feet from me. And, and I couldn't believe it. I said, I, just, I can't let this guy get past me. Um, so I was yelling. And I could see him at this point. He was sitting with his back to me, and he was coiling line. Oh, he had his back to you. Yeah, so he didn't see me. And he had a big Yamaha outboard motor that was making a lot of noise, so he couldn't hear me, of course. And at some point, he slowed the motor, and he leaned over to get something out of the water, and, and he heard me yelling. He came over, and first thing he said to me was, I don't know why they couldn't find you last night. You were telling them right where you were, because oh. I had been I had been on the radio with the Coast Guard, and uh, they never left the harbor. And what I found afterwards, when I when I was when the fishermen took me into the Coast into Guard the station, uh -huh. uh, was that those people are not they're not trained for Coast Guard work. They also are police who were rotated into Coast Guard duty oh. on a regular basis. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ed, I'm glad you lived to tell the tale. Yeah. I'm so happy you're with us, and thank you so much for coming in again today and telling us your story. I really appreciate it. Yes, it was fun. Fun. <laughs> no, it was not fun, but it was, uh, it was interesting, interesting talking about it. Yeah, well. Okay. Okay, thanks. That's it for Catskill Character today. Tune in again next Saturday at 11.30 on WGN.
WJFF. WJFF Jeffersonville. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listeners like you. On this week's On the Media, how William Shakespeare became an American icon enlisted forever in our political fights. It is explosive. It is potentially toxic. But that's why it speaks to us. We get it. From free speech to race to immigration and beyond. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. WJFF Jeffersonville. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. From river to river, mountain to mountain, keeping you connected. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com. And 